0: You know, I was just thinking as we were singing the last part of that song and repeating that, that chorus, it's just a stark reminder and maybe something that just about everybody in this room already realizes. But in the end, I mean, when everything is said and done, and I know that's a phrase we often repeat, when everything is said and done and everything is laid bare, there are only two categories of people on the whole earth. That's it. Not divided by race or, or gender or nationality, ethnicity, language, only two categories. Those who are able to stand before God with the fulfillment of everything they have longed for and desired, satisfied. I mean, to be able to say and sing that, to know that one day you'll be able to glory in your Redeemer and see Him face to face. That's one category, are those who have every reason to fear standing before the Almighty God. I mean, those are the only two categories. The redeemed or the lost. Those who receive... The glory and the blessing and the benefits of Christ are those who receive the judgment for sin. And I hope that you're on the right side of that. And I hope that you'll make it your aim. For the people that you know, the people you have influence with. In the arenas that you get to speak and live. That you'll surrender your life to the service of the king and be a a good ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I urge you, therefore, then, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. May that be the the aim of all of us, that God would use us as his ambassadors that way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you grant us unusual focus, capacity to hear. I pray you give us a softness and a willingness to receive truth and maybe accept conviction that we sometimes can be resistant to, I pray you'd be not only revealing yourself, mostly that, revealing yourself through your word, who you are and what you want and what you've done and what you'll do and how we can know you and love you, but Father, also today, specific to this text, reveal us, I mean, peel back the those layers that we sometimes don't even see in ourselves. So, Father, we might see rightly and respond correctly and live better, live well, and not only for our sake, but for the sake of all those around us. We are your ambassadors, Father. I pray you teach us today. I pray you speak to us today. I pray you minister to us by your Spirit today. I pray you empower us today, encourage us, help us. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn your attention this morning to First Timothy chapter 4. If you've been here for a little while, that's not surprised to you. That's where we've been for, for a little bit of a season now. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 12. This is a particularly uh, special passage for me, particularly that first verse, 1 Timothy 4, 12, because that's the verse that made up the content of the first sermon that I ever preached. And uh, I preached a lot of sermons between that one and this one, and many of them are, are not memorable, um, at least not for me. Uh, this one I remember. It was it was youth week at church. You guys remember we used to do that kind of old school youth week and the students like take over everything. You got youth chairman of the deacons, you got youth pastor, youth minister of music, youth everywhere and you know sometimes that can be like a whole b- bunch of chaos happening up there and some group in their infinite wisdom decided that eighth grade me would be the candidate to be youth pastor that week and I get to preach the sermon. So not really knowing where to start. You know, they told me I had to do it. They didn't tell me how to do it. So I pulled up this verse. I said, well, this is perfect, right? This is youth week. Let no one despise you for your youth. I'll preach that. And I worked, man. I worked. I wrote notes and notes. I had pages and pages. Um, I didn't have a computer or a typewriter or anything, so it was all on notebook paper. I mean, pages and pages of stuff. And I got there, and I preached my heart out. And I went through every single page and every single word. And when I looked down... Holy cow, it had been eight minutes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, that's it, that's all I got. <laughs> um, I've got more than eight minutes today, but this verse is still special to me. 1 Timothy four twelve. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. there's a lot of stuff to unpack there a lot of challenging content and I hope that you will hear what God's saying to you in it this morning you know we just came off of a section in first Timothy where Paul had reminded him you know this this youngish pastor you know, someone had estimated Timothy is maybe around 35 years old which may or may not seem young to you based on your own age perspective but in that culture that's a pretty young guy to be taking on a title of elder and so here's Timothy And Paul and his, not just his experience with the world and experience with religious culture, but his experience with the Lord was telling him, beware of this. And one of the challenges was there are going to be so many false teachers, and they're going to emerge from within. They're not just going to come from the outside. And it's not just going to be so obvious in their advance. They're going to emerge from within. They're going to be people that you like and people that you're friends with and, and people that are similar to you and and people that or sometimes kind of close to you, but they're going to begin to teach things that are just wrong. And you can't lead the church if you don't guard it. And you can't promote the truth if you don't protect it. And so you got to stand in front of this crowd and say, no, that's wrong, and that person's wrong, and that's a false teacher, and that's a false teaching. And, you know, I would imagine this. It was no easier in the first century than it is in in the 21st century. And I would say over the years, nothing has probably cost me more. Not cost let me change that word, caused me to have more pushback than naming people or teachings that I think are just false. They don't align with scripture. And it's not hard to do, honestly. I mean, because they're everywhere today and they're not in hiding anymore. In fact, I would say the challenge for us in the modern era is this, not to assume that most people are right anymore. That's right teaching, correct teaching, is a default mode. In fact, it seems more and more that right teaching is the exception to the rule, at least what's most promoted publicly. And there are examples of so many false teachers. And let me just say this as an aside. I made a little note to myself in the notes this morning, sort of a last-minute edition. It was just a caution. It just dawned on me this week in a conversation I had with someone. Probably all of us, when I say false teacher... Or when I use the term false teaching, you're probably already thinking of something taught or some person who's taught it. You probably have some image in your mind already, an object lesson. I would just challenge you be super careful in your discernment, your perception. We are called to be discerning. We are. You have to be. I'm responsible for what I teach, and the elders hold me accountable to that just as you hold all of us accountable. But you're responsible for what you hear, what you listen to, what you read, what you engage in. So you've got to be discerning. But just be careful that the the, um, the method you use to discern is not solely an emotional one. I like this teacher, or I like this teaching because I like how it makes me feel. We are so prone to do that. I, I think Satan has been preying on people in the realm of their emotions, really since the Garden of Eden. Be careful that you're not discerning teaching and teachers because you like the way it sounds, the way it makes you feel. And by the same token, and this is a harder one for those of you who are like me who've grown up in church, you've been in church all your life. I preached that first sermon at Derrida Baptist Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, every how many years ago that was in eighth grade. And I have an idea already because it's just been what's normal, what's been acceptable, what's been traditionally taught all those years. Be careful that you don't reject things just simply because it doesn't align with stuff you've Heard most of your life just because we've heard it most of our life doesn't mean that it's right can you imagine that response to the whole reformation you've got people looking at scripture and saying this doesn't fit this doesn't align and people say this has been our tradition for 1300 years but it doesn't matter tradition doesn't trump truth and be careful of that I often find today um, it seems like the default mode for many is this those that are saying the right thing or true things or are those who are saying things I already agree with because I've already made up my mind. I will just challenge you in your discernment to carefully consider weigh everything by the counsel of Scripture. The counsel of Scripture, that's the only thing that's foolproof. And even, even those of you who, who are like me and you like to read and you like to read teachers and theologians and pastors, be careful of this shortcut. It's one I take sometimes and I shouldn't. Let me just find out what so-and-so says. I'll just take his word for it. Because if he says, I trust him, but you know, none of us have got it all right. But the scripture does, and the Holy Spirit will teach us. So I'm just that's a free one, that's an aside. There are a lot of false teachers out there, and I think they're fairly for the most part, if we're honest, they're easy to spot and easy to assess. But here's a more challenging area, and I suspect there are far more people who lead and preach and teach who fail not in the area of doctrine, but have failed in the area of life. Those are a lot of names you're not ever going to know because they just sometimes just fade away. They retire early or they leave the ministry. Sometimes they're pushed out or forced out. At the best, we won't know their names. At the worst, they drag lots of people down with them. They create confusion in the world. They create confusion about the gospel. They create hurt and disillusionment in the church. And these are having more and more And more. They're ignoring the absolutely essential wisdom of Proverbs 4.23. Man, write this one down. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. And those who are ignoring their hearts, those who are ignoring the inner person, the real self, they might be more dangerous than those who are ignoring their doctrine. I think of one example. This is certainly not an example of piling on. But just so you understand what I'm saying here, I, I've got an example of a, of a theologian, an author, who I think, I probably have all of his books, maybe not all, but most. And I've referenced him many times. used to quote him an awful lot. I, I would say, for my generation, he probably was the world's leading Christian apologist. I mean, he was a go-to. How does Christianity compare with Islam or Hinduism? How does Christianity confront the challenges of atheism and humanism and secularism? And how does it speak to our culture? And then we discovered in August of 2020 that this leading theologian, Robbie Zacharias, was accused hundreds of situations of sexual malfeasance, sexual misconduct, abuse, even rape accusations we find a whole ministry that came crumbling down and a reputation lost. And, you know, while the truth that's in those books are still true sitting on my shelf, I don't quote him to you anymore. I don't reference him anymore. I don't say, well, you know, Ravi Zacharias said, because his life discredited him. According to Christianity Today, this is a quote. When he died in May, he was praised for his faithful witness, his commitment to the truth, and his personal integrity. Now it's clear that offstage, the man so long admired by Christians around the world abused numerous women, and he manipulated those around him to turn a blind eye. And so what do we do with these cases again and again? Well, let me give you some context here for this situation that I just read, and then I want to switch to some application for all of us, so hang with me this morning. First of all, this, these contextual statements. So write them down quickly. Timothy, as I already mentioned, was a relative youth. And I say relative. He was about 35. He's under 40 number of scholars estimate him as mid-30s, let's say about 35, in a world that respected its elders. And when I say elders there, I'm using the word elders in the traditional sense. You know, coming out of a Jewish context, elders had a position of influence. And probably as they should in any healthy culture. Any culture that rejects the wisdom of the oldest among them is a culture destined for destruction. Can I get an amen? Amen. The older folks should be really amen in that. That's something you should be excited about. If you ignore the wisdom and experience and knowledge of those older than you, then you're setting yourself up for failure. You don't have to learn everything for yourself. You can learn through their experiences and what they've seen. So he's a relative youth in a world that respected its elders, and that's why he says don't let them despise your youth. In other words, you've got a little bit of a challenge in the beginning point because they're not going to look to you naturally as someone that I should be listening to. I remember when I, when I first became pastor here, um, which was March of 2012. I was 43 years old, so you can do the math. I was 43 years old, and I had several people on that first Sunday said, this would be the first time in my life I've ever had a pastor younger than me. And I had several people say, you're so young, how old are you? And here, here, the whole time I'm thinking, is, I'm not young anymore. I've been pastoring at my previous church for 17 years. I mean, I'd grown out of that stage of being a young guy. I started there in braces and kind of grew out of it, got some gray hair along the way. But now all of a sudden here, like I'm starting all over, I'm punching the clock. I understand, again, a youth, in a world that respects its elders. Timothy was a relative novice. He's a relative newcomer in a world that honors wisdom and scholarship. Again, somebody like Paul could stand up for them, and just on his, just on his experience of life and education, he's got weight. I mean, people listen. I mean, he's a scholar. He's a, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's a teacher of the teachers. He's a student and a scholar of the law. I mean, you didn't have to agree with what he said, but you couldn't say he didn't know what he was talking about. Now, Timothy's assuming elder leadership of a church that is surrounded by a culture of paganism. And the reason I point that out to you, not just to point out the obvious, Ephesus, primary worship is the goddess Diana, everything's centered around that, but so many offshoots and so many other pagan gods and goddesses worship there. It's just a reminder to me and to you that sometimes when we get a little, I don't know, feeling like, oh, it's just so hard So tough, we feel a little pity for ourselves. Hard to be a Christian today. People are against us, they don't understand the government, the blah, 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 the media, blah, blah. They were pagans there, hardcore pagans, and and they did not want this Christian presence. I mean, I know it's hard today, but it was hard then. You know what? It's always been. And Jesus said it would be, the world's going to hate you if you're faithful to me. If it hated me, it's going to hate you. That's what Jesus said. That's a slight, but only slight paraphrase. So this is a culture. So in this challenge, this is, the, the, this is sort of the stew that this is all boiling in. And in that context, what should you do then? I'm going to tell you something to do because you're young and you're, and you're newish and the challenge in the community and culture is going to be great. What do you do? He gives them these commands. And again, I paraphrase. I, I simplify the statement. Commands. One, lead with your life. Timothy, you've got to lead with your life. What's got to be out front is you. They've got to see you. You've got to live a life that's worth following. You've got to set an example, set an example that's worth emulating. Lead, Lead with your life. He says, be an example to them. Be an example to them. What you want them to be, be that. What you want them to do, do that. You're not pushing them hard from behind, you're leading from out front, you be that lead with your life number two give them the word when i say lead with your life i'm not saying lead them with your stories lead them with your experiences lead them with your examples make yourself the star of the the show make yourself the hero no you be out there doing the things that the word tells you to do you be shaped by the word that you teach but give them the word that's your job you're going to have many responsibilities as a pastor in this church. You're going to have many responsibilities in elder leadership. A lot of things you're going to be called on to do and expected to do. But your job, your assignment from God, give Him the Word. Give Him the Word because that's where life comes from. That's what changes people. That's what changes lives. That's what changes futures. That's what gives hope. Give attention to reading it, to exhortation, challenging people with it, to doctrine. The teaching, what does it mean? You know, I hope you've noticed this. I don't know how long, but over the last number of months, I hope you've noticed that we've intentionally been increasing the public reading of Scripture. I hope you pick up on that. Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. Sometimes just simply reading it with little to no explanation of the text, just to let the Scripture speak, because this This is what God uses to change us, to feed us. This is what we feed on. And this is fundamental to what the church did in the very first century and should have been doing all along. So he says, give them the word. But number three, he says, do this by relying on God's power. You you lead out front with your life, you give them the word, and you rely on the power of God. If anything is going to happen that's going to have eternal impact if anything it's going to dig down deep into somebody's life and really change them I mean if anything real and lasting is going to happen it's not going to be because of what you've said or done Timothy it's going to be because of my power the Holy Spirit and I'm choosing you as a vessel that I'll use I'm inviting you into the work that I do so you rely on God's power through this gift that he's given you he says do not neglect the gift Is not the time or place for that message for us today. I'm not talking about spiritual gifts per se. But if we're serious about sin in our life, I bet a majority of us either now or have been guilty of neglecting the gift God has given you. So I don't even know what my gift is. There you go. Well, I know, but I'm not using it. There you go. God's given spiritual gifts. And and just so it's clear, when he says through the gift, I want to make sure there's nothing confusing about the statement there do not neglect the gift which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you he, he's not saying that a gift comes when either someone lays their hands on you whether that's some sort of ordination or just recognition or when someone prophesies about you the language can be a little bit confusing there in the way we've rendered it in English but what we're basically talking about is this Paul and others recognized and gave a prophetic word about how God was going to use you there was a, there was a prophecy given about you Timothy when you were young God gave you the gift. They recognized because God's Spirit revealed to them that God was gifting you in this way. And when they laid hands on you, they affirmed it. They confirmed it. They said there's evidence here that this is true of you. We're recognizing you. There, you know, the Bible tells us not to be quick to lay hands on. Now, let's see. Let's see the fruit, see the evidence. God told us He's going to give you a gift. The Holy Spirit gave you the gift. We recognize the gift, and that's what he's talking about. And all these statements, lead with your life, give them the word, rely on God's power, can be summarized in this. And this is where I really want to drill down for our final few minutes. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. First Timothy 4.16 says we have to pay attention to both. Now, they're different things. Life and teaching are not the same things, but they're ultimately inseparable things. And one removed from the other invalidates the other. We think of teachers that we know today, even characters or personalities that we like. I can think of even some in my own life, either that were teachers of mine or pastors that I knew. And as far as I know, their life is still moral and exemplary and their family life and their marriages and all those things. But their teaching, I just... It saddens me to see the detours and the deviations. And then those whose life just don't match. It invalidates what they're saying to be true. If it's true, we we do what we really believe. And if we don't, then we don't really believe it. And so I don't think you can really watch your life if you're not watching your doctrine because doctrine tells me what's true and good and how I ought to live. And it doesn't do me any good to study doctrine like an academic exercise if I don't apply it to my life. Does that make sense? And so even this morning, as we're doing our open class, and I'm teaching the third part of systematic theology, the attributes of God, I remind them of the phrase that was so meaningful to me by J. I. Packer that doc, I mean that theology, study of God, doctrine, etc., theology is for doxology and devotion. Doxology, worship. What you study about God should inform and inspire your worship of God and devotion your love for God so if I'm just studying stuff if I'm learning a bunch of stuff but it doesn't change how I approach God how I trust God if it doesn't affect my prayer life my quiet time if it doesn't change my heart to make me love God more then I'm not watching my life I'm just watching the doctrine and then I realized this I thought through this just for a moment as much as we have to pay attention to both I think it's a lot easier to study doctrine than it is to study myself I think doctrine is easier to study than, than me. I can put doctrine on the shelf. I can separate it from me. I can approach it analytically. I can even be indifferent to it if I choose to. Studying yourself, that's a lot harder. And I've got a sneaking suspicion, and maybe my bearings are even a bit off, but I don't think they are. I've got a sneaking suspicion that there aren't a lot of us that spend a whole lot of time doing what this passage says. Take heed to yourself, the King James says. Keep a close watch on yourself. I mean, we, we, we spot the wrongs in others and their wrong teachings and their wrong beliefs. And we, we enjoy doctrine for the most part because, well, I mean, for 11 years, I've been feeding you a diet of doctrine and teaching so now you have an appetite for it. But what about studying yourself? You see, you can't neglect either if you want to live a life that honors God. You can't. God who knows the heart, God who measures us by why we do what we do, not just what we do. God who knows that from the heart, everything emanates. You, you can't live a life that honors God you, and you can't finish well if you neglect yourself, your heart, your life. And you can't be a boon to others, and that's what I want your life to be, an, an encouragement, a, a blessing, a challenge. I, w- I want you to be a, a catalyst for the spiritual life of the people around you, not a burden. You know, your faithfulness, your, just sometimes just the simplest act of obedience, like, like being here, being in worship, singing, praying, is a blessing to other people, it's an encouragement to them. By the same way, simple acts of disobedience, or acts that seem simple, can be such a discouragement. What happened to Bob? I mean, he used to be in church all the time. He doesn't come anymore. I wonder why. I wonder what's going on. And it begins to affect other people's faith as well. But I want to talk to you just for a minute this morning about keeping watch on yourself. You see, to know yourself means to know your heart. To know yourself means to know your heart. I believe that when Timothy was challenged through the words the Holy Spirit gave Paul, he wasn't focusing just on his reputation. Now hear what I'm saying. When he said, keep a close watch on your life and the doctrine, your life and the teaching, it would be easy for us, I think, to say, oh, he's he's talking about image, He's talking about public reputation. I mean, if you're, you're an out-front person, you're a leader, you know, you, you got to guard that. You got to be careful about what people think of you. And some of us pay a lot more attention to image and reputation, give a lot more concern and thought to how we might be being perceived what people think about us. Then we do the much more difficult, painstaking, painful study of our own hearts. But everything comes out of there. When we speak, it comes from there. When we make decisions, it came from there. When we sin, it came from there. Everything emanates from in here. So to know yourself is to know your heart. Therefore, self-examination is critical for Christian living. Self-examination. And so, before, as I will explain to you the context of this message, you might have been thinking, well, this only applies to Timothy, Right? or pastor to pastor, elder to elder, church leaders, etc. I'm not in that category. And I want you to know this applies to Christians. Because your life speaks. You have influence in people and people in circles. And it's as important for Timothy in leadership as it is for you in life to watch both of these things closely, your life and what you believe and say and do. So self-examination, and he gives him these categories. Remember what he said in the beginning? He said that believers an example, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Again, I'm just slightly rewarding these for definition. Your heart, how you talk. Why do I say the things that I say? Because that's what's in my heart. How I act. Why do I act like I do? Because I want to, because that's the attitude of my heart. What things do I go after and pursue? And What things do I feel frustrated or offended if I don't get what are my affections? That's all coming from my heart. That's the real me, my faith. Is it feigned or is it real? Is it authentic? Am I a hypocrite? Is this something I do because that's the way I'm supposed to do or is this who I am? And it all centers around your integrity, your purity. Not reputation. Not who people think you are. But who before God, he knows you are. And here's the interesting thing. When it comes to our heart sometimes, and it comes to the self-examination, we still have a problem. Even as I challenge you this morning, as I'm challenging myself, and I say, wow, this is so convicting. I've got to give more attention to my own heart, my own life. That's what Paul told Timothy. That's what God's telling me. I've got to pay more attention to my heart. I still have this problem because my own heart deceives me. I've got blind spots where I'm concerned. It's just the nature of sin. The the sinful person, the sinning heart, doesn't often see its own sinfulness. That's just the truth. Listen to this assessment. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and the first part of 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer to that question is found in the next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind. What is he saying to us here? Your own heart will tell you lies. Don't trust it. Don't follow it. And don't think that it's telling you the whole story. Because we're really good at saying things to ourselves we want to hear. Causing ourselves to believe things we want to believe. Making ourselves feel things that we think will make us feel better and avoiding at all costs anything that makes us hurt or cry or feel remorse or regret or pain, we will do almost anything in our power to not deal with negative things, particularly about ourselves. Have you noticed that? Notice I have to be careful what I say because you might interpret it in the wrong way. I know there's a place for, for therapy and counseling, and those are there's a place for medication and treatments, but there's also a place for radical self-examination of looking at my own heart, and dealing with what I see, and when what I see pains me, not medicate the pain, not recreate the pain, not try to ignore the pain, but why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Why do I keep saying what I'm saying? Why do I stay this way? John Owen, Puritan pastor, accredited by J.I. Packer, one of, one of my favorite modern theologians who's now And fairly recently passed. J.I. Packer said no one had caused him to look into his own heart like the writings of John Owen did. These are quite old, so consider the language is a few hundred years old. But listen to what John Owen wrote in his book, Indwelling Sin. I want you to hear this. I'm going to read it slowly. Just let this hit and sit and weigh. Many men live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are, the condition of their bodies as to health and sickness, they're careful to examine. But as to their inward man and their principles as to God and eternity, they know little or nothing of themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought, or acquainted with the evil of their own hearts as they ought, on which yet the whole course of their obedience And consequently, of their eternal condition, doth depend. So if that's the case, if I'm going to be faithful to the Lord for my sake and for yours, if you're going to be faithful to the Lord for your own spiritual health and endurance and perseverance and finishing well and for the sake of your family and your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you engage in self-examination, realize that your own acts of self-examination are not going to be sufficient. Therefore, you have to at least do these things. You have to constantly ask God to help you see yourself. When was the last time that you prayed a prayer that sounds like these Psalms? These prayers that I'm, I'm, I'm consciously, constantly asking God, God help me to see myself for real. And And if we don't do this, why do we not do it? Are we afraid of what we'll see? Afraid of how it'll make us feel? Afraid of having to face it? If Satan can keep these things in the dark, hidden even from our own vision, then he can keep them alive and growing in the dark. It's only to the exposure of the light that real healing can take place and real restoration, real forgiveness, the real hard work of getting life right, fixing what's broken, digging down deep and getting to it. Psalm 26, verse 2 and 3, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I chose that verse for two reasons. One, because it's just so powerfully straightforward. God, test my heart and my mind. Try me. And what a bold and vulnerable prayer. Test me and try me. But I'm saying this prayer not to my enemy, not to my detractor, not to my accuser, not to someone who's indifferent towards me or doesn't know me. I can only pray that sort of prayer to the one who knows me absolutely and loves me still. I can be as authentic as possible because of God's grace towards me. I can ask Him to test me and try me, search my mind and my heart because His love is steadfast. That's the grace that you have if you're a Christian. God will not turn His He will not turn his eye away from you. He will not refuse or reject you. He will not love you less for being real and honest and dealing with the issues of your heart. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, Psalm 139 is that great psalm that talks about us even before we were born. How much does God know you? He knows you in your mother's womb, that's how much. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Praying, God, show me what you see. And look at the second part of that. It's not to condemn me. It's not so I can wallow in in remorse and and regret and and contrition and self-flagellation. God, show me so that this can happen for me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Show me the truth. Heal what's hurt. Fix what's broken. Lead me out of this. Change me. And not only inviting and asking God. And here's one that gets really hard. What about inviting and allowing others to help you watch your life? I think it's a must. Now I get it. And I, I already set the stage for this. I get it. They're not God. They don't have infinite mercy and love. They don't have absolute understanding. They're not rich in patience and long-suffering. And people's love tends not to be steadfast. Nonetheless, by God's design, for our good, because he's always good, and his ways are perfect, and he's infinitely wise, God, for our design, for our sake, required us to require other people. This Christian life is not your personal private endeavor. We are family. We are are marching towards the the finish line together. And we do it together. Consider some of these statements from scriptures. I'm going to give you just the straight scripture. Consider Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. I realized that fairly early on in the context of marriage. I'm always right. Cecilia's mostly right. That is, when she agrees with me, she's right. My default mode is, I'm right, and if you're the same as me, you also are right. If you're different than me, you are not right. But is that not the default mode of most of us? That's a pretty foolish way of approaching life, though, honestly, isn't it? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I don't see my own blind spots. That's what he's saying. I don't see it. I don't see where I'm wrong. I don't see my own deficiencies. That's the nature of sin. Sin is a deceiver but a wise man listens Hebrews 12 take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart take care all of you lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God okay so look collectively speaking this all of us all of us let's take care that none of us fall away how about we make that our commitment I don't want any of us to fall away let's make sure we all believe all the way to the end and that our assurance is not based on our baptism certificate from 1974, but it's based on our constant faithfulness to God today. And if I die today, I'm ready. I'm ready to see Him face to face. Let's do this together. Take care that none of us have an unbelieving heart. How do we do that? Verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you catch that? I mean, that's that's real. That's heavy. Every day, somebody in here, is needing someone else in here to exhort them to say brother this is what the scripture says my, my brother my sister i'm concerned for you because this is what what you said but this is what the scripture this is what you're doing what, so that this doesn't happen that you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end galatians 6 1 brothers If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. When he says burdens, that doesn't mean just help people with their hard tasks. He's talking about the burden of sin. Bear with them. Bear with them. This sin is a load on their back. It will crush them if left unchecked. It will derail them, and it will affect many people. So, how are you going to bear that with them? You're going to fulfill the law of Christ by loving them and restoring them, by exhorting them. Ephesians four twenty five. Therefore, having put away falsehood, why? Because we're keeping an eye on doctrine and the truth. We put it away. We said no. We this, we, we live by the truth. We're we're word shaped people. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. That's life and teaching. People of the truth who speak the truth. See, here's the issue, though. Because I can sometimes see other people's sin pretty clearly, or at least think I can. Are you that way? Anybody? Raise your hand. I know who you are. You assume that, and I assume that I can see my own sin clearly. It just doesn't always work that way. I love this statement by Paul Tripp. He says, the sin of a sinner is self-deceiving. The sin of a sinner is self deceiving. You know, it's not that serious for me as it might be for you. I can handle it, whereas you can't. It won't have the effect on me it might have on you. I can take it or leave it, unlike you. No, the sin of a sinner is self deceiving. In his excellent little book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, listen to what he says. Since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we'll have pockets of spiritual blindness. Our most important vision system is not our physical eyes. We can be physically blind and still live quite well. But when we're spiritually blind, we cannot live as God intended. Physically blind people are always aware of their deficit and spend their lives learning how to live with its limitations and overcome them. But the Bible says that we can be spiritually blind and yet think that we see quite well. We even get offended when people act as if they see us better than we see ourselves. The reality of spiritual blindness has important implications for the Christian community. The passage we just read in Hebrews clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. Did you catch that? Personal insight is the product of community. Does that happen in your small group when it gathers? Does that happen when your smaller group for discipleship gathers? Does that happen formally? Does it happen informally with people that you love and trust? Does it ever happen? I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, buy into my own delusions. My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's Word in front of me, and that's what we're talking about. So, real quick, what's at stake here? Very interesting statement. A bit puzzling even at the end that brings this to conclusion. He says, persist in this, so this is not a once-in-a-while in sort of thing. This is a constant life of, of, of a faithful Christian persisting and watching my life, knowing myself, taking heed to myself and to the truth. In doing this, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. Wow, save. And that's a strong word right there. In what way will Timothy's godly living, or yours or mine, and doctrinal teaching, because that's what we're talking about life and doctrine, in what way will that save somebody? Now, remember, the whole context of this chapter, and I'm going to hit this just quickly, the whole context of this chapter was centered on being clear about doctrine and teaching, primarily the gospel. Paramount is the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ, how we must respond to it, the declaration of salvation afforded to us in Christ, the kingdom of God is here through the person of Jesus, who invites us now to repent, believe the good news, and follow him. So we may know him, love him, serve him, and enjoy him forever. The centrality of the gospel is paramount. Just as we saw a little earlier, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul was not espousing suddenly after taking the gospel to so many places at great risk to his own life, he was not suddenly espousing universalism. He says God is the Savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. He wasn't saying everybody gets saved and some people get special saved. No. He's just reaffirming the same themes we've seen throughout the book of Timothy already. The offer of salvation is for everyone. It's not respective of nationality or background or religious culture or history. It's offered to all kinds of people, and all kinds of people will be saved. But those who uniquely know what it is to be saved, the only way salvation comes is those who by faith put their trust in Christ. So those who believe in him, those are truly saved, it's not... Universalism. That's the second time that Paul has used that phrase, Savior of all men. And the context, again, is always the same. It's all kinds of men, all kinds of people. And the idea of especially, again, doesn't mean two kinds of salvation. Literally, the word especially means to be precise. Or we could render that same passage. In other words, salvation is offered to all men. God is the Savior of all men. In other words, those who believe, especially. He's the Savior of those who believe. And in the same way verse 16 of chapter 4 doesn't teach salvation by works he's not saying that he's, he's not saying that if you, if you live right, keep living right keep living right, keep living right believe the right things, you'll get to be saved and you'll get to save other people Roman Catholics have often misrendered 1 Timothy 4.16 to teach the doctrine of this sanctification, salvation by sanctification not by justification what is he really saying? He's not saying salvation by works, but that God, who can do all things without our assistance, he can. He requires no teacher. He requires no prophet. He requires no priest. God, who can do all things without our assistance, has nevertheless chosen to do some of his work through us, and Paul is not talking about self-atonement. He's not talking about earning salvation. He's talking about God's ordained agency, how God works through people for this primary component of your salvation and what's particularly in view here this critical concept that's in view here is perseverance that's what he's talking about God works through means to accomplish the ends that he's already promised now I know that sounds a bit confusing but God is in both the way it happens and that it happens means and ends and in the end those who are truly in Christ will remain so no one can take them out of my hand, Jesus says, the Father is given to me, given them to me, and no one can take them out of my hand. But the means by which we remain in his hand, as we saw in our study through the Hebrews, the human side of the means is perseverance. He perseveres me, and I persevere in him. Perseverance, the question, how will I remain faithful and help my brothers and sisters do the same? That's the question I want you to be asking yourself as you leave here today. How will I remain faithful to the end, and how will I help my brothers and sisters in this family of faith and beyond do the same? That's our aim, to finish well, right? Is that your aim, finish well? To hear the well done of God? That's what I want to hear ringing in my ears. We sing these songs about seeing them face to face. I want to hear the words. I want to hear well done, and not just for me. I want to be standing in the company of people that I know. People that my life has intersected with. People that I've had the opportunity to teach or encourage or challenge. And we won't do this. You won't hear the well done. And you won't be part of the success of others hearing the well done if you don't watch your life and your doctrine. If you don't take heed to yourself. When it comes to persevering to the very end, it's hard, it's hard to think of a better example than Thomas Boston. This faithful Scottish minister in the last month of his life was confined to his bed with a serious illness. And yet, amazingly, his congregation still gathered outside the window of his parsonage to hear him read the scriptures and pray for them and preach to them, even from his bed. The last sermon that Thomas Boston preached was called The Necessity of Self-Examination. The necessity of self-examination. He took it from Psalm 139, verses I read to you earlier, verses 23 and 24. In it, he begs the people to remain faithful to the end. Here's something that he said in that sermon that, that really spoke to me. If everyone would make it his great care, and this is in the 1800s. If everyone would make it his great care in all things to obey God, to live justly and holy to walk in everything according to Christian rules and would maintain a strict, watchful, and scrutinous eye over himself to see if there was no wicked way in him, would give diligence to amend whatever is amiss, would avoid every unholy, unchristian, and sinful way, and if the practice of all were universally as becometh Christians, how greatly would this be to the glory of God and of Jesus Christ? How greatly would it be to the credit and honor of our faith? How would it tend to excite a high esteem of this faith in spectators and to recommend a holy life? How would it stop the mouths of objectors and opposers? You know, those that would call us hypocrites? Charlatans, fakes? How beautiful and amiable would our faith then appear when exemplified in the lives of Christians, not maimed and mutilated, but whole and entire as it were in its true shape, having all its parts and its proper beauty. If those who call themselves Christians thus walked in all the paths of virtue and holiness, it would tend more to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ in the world, the conviction of sinners, and the propagation of religion among unbelievers than all the sermons in the world. Watch your life and doctrine. He concluded that message with no less than 76 questions for self-examination. I saw a few of you do this. Uh-oh. I'm not going to read the 76 questions to you. But I'm counting on this. I'm counting on some of you being curious enough to know or serious enough to know what tools might I employ for rigorous self-examination to say, I'd like to know what those 76 questions are. So I printed copies, not enough for everyone, but if you go to the Next Steps kiosk at the end of the service day, you'll find a handout. And I just took them straight from his writings, 76 questions for self-examination. Look at what a previous generation did when it came to their own spiritual life, walk with the Lord. Look at how they approached God and how they handled their own Christian faith. And let's give heed to this text. Watch your life and your doctrine closely persist in this. In so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father God, if we've heard your word well today, we are challenged. We are convicted. Uh, We have been confronted. Father, I pray that you would move us to action. I pray that you would move us to obedient response. So much to consider and weigh out. Father, I pray that at the least you would stir up in us a desire to live life that pleases you. Father, forgive us for our indifference, for not caring about these things. God, forgive us for ignoring maybe the most critical thing. Sometimes, unintentionally, often quite intentionally. It's easier to deal in the realm of facts and information than to deal with the issues of the heart. But out of the heart come every issue of our life, every single one. Father, examine our hearts. Enable us to examine our hearts. Father, by your grace, by the power of your Spirit, from the depth of your mercy, forgive what we confess, restore what is broken, heal what has been harmed. Lord, do a work in us. Lord, may this be our aim. May this be our aim to watch our own lives our own hearts, and the truth that we accept to be true and live by in a way that guards us, keeps us faithful to the end, and is a blessing for the sake of all those around us who want and need to do the same. Lord, I pray that would be true of us today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.